0: As the author of our companion commentary, I can assure you that there was no attempt made to explore anywhere near all the passages in the New Testament, let alone the whole Bible, that have great relevance to the theme of pilgrim people. It was my intent to help readers witness the powerful way that theme resounds within Scripture, trusting that as you explore the Bible on your own, you would recognize the theme over and over again. Given the opportunity in this wrap-up lecture to revisit how the New Testament calls us to embrace our status as pilgrims, I would very much like to look at just a few passages that aren't dealt with in the commentary. These still won't come near to covering all the possible passages, but I am confident that they are worth our time in exploring. In the last 12 verses of Luke chapter 2, we are invited to look at the Messiah's family while he is yet a boy, but on the verge of adulthood as it was understood in those times. Many see the events described in this passage as the equivalent of a Jewish bar mitzvah, although it is nowhere certain how that rite of passage was celebrated in Jesus' time, or even if it was at all. What stands out first of all in this passage is that Mary and Joseph are regular pilgrims. They live in Nazareth, but in faithful compliance to the commandment in Deuteronomy 16 verse 2, you shall offer the Passover sacrifice from your flock or your herd to the Lord, your God, in the place which he chooses as the dwelling place of his name." This dwelling place God has chosen is, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary and Jesus traveled to Jerusalem and the temple every year in order to celebrate the Passover. All the events of this passage happen in the context of a ritual pilgrimage. But the gift from God that results from the pilgrimage is an unexpected one for these two faithful Jewish parents of a 12-year-old Jewish boy. Each year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to festival custom. After they had completed its days, as they were returning, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Thinking that he was in the caravan, they journeyed for a day and looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances. But not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and favor before God and man. If even a fraction of the Jews of Palestine in Jesus' day attempted to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem as the Torah commands, the roads to and from Jerusalem would have been very crowded with pilgrims. According to custom, men and women would apparently travel in separate groups with women responsible for looking after the children. The task of childbinding is one that could also be traded among the women so that on leaving Jerusalem, Mary might have assumed that Jesus was being watched by someone else. He was, after all, a good boy. She wouldn't have had to worry about any shenanigans. One note worth making, however, is that if Jesus had actually celebrated his bar mitzvah in Jerusalem while his parents were there, Jesus would have been expected to return in Joseph's company, not Mary's. He would have been regarded as a man, not a child. But that's just a curiosity for which we have no answer. What Luke tells us is that Joseph and Mary went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem with Jesus in order to celebrate the Passover. This very faithful Jewish family had gone to Jerusalem in order to celebrate God's redemption of Israel in the Exodus. Many things happened in the Exodus that made the pilgrimage a joyous occasion. Greatest of all, however, would be the freedom to worship the God who had set them free and made them a people. The Passover was the celebration above all others that renewed them as a people living in a covenant with God. To this day, wherever in the world they find themselves, when Jewish people gather in their families to celebrate the Passover, the freedom to worship God in the Passover meal is regarded as a sure and certain sign that God continues to honor His covenant with Israel. But for Mary and Joseph, the joy of having just made this celebration is quickly eclipsed. They have lost Jesus. And so they return to Jerusalem. They return to the temple, but this time they are not pilgrims. Or are they? Luke is describing a new religious reality now. God has come to the temple in a new way, but it is a way that causes consternation for all concerned. The Jewish elders are stunned and his own parents are bewildered. Luke tells us something of great symbolic importance in this account that takes it far beyond just an account of Jesus' remarkable grasp of the Jewish covenant or even of his respectful but nuanced obedience to his earthly parents. Luke tells us that Jesus was lost to Mary and Joseph for three days before they found him in the temple. Their search during this three-day loss is their true pilgrimage. For in it, they have moved from the celebration of the Passover as the most important feature of their covenant relationship with God to that of finding Jesus in the temple of their faith. And the three days is all important here because even in this account of the 12-year-old Jesus, Luke is suggesting that it is the risen Christ we are always seeking now. Jesus died and rose from the dead on the third day and it is on that endless third day, the day of the resurrection, that all pilgrims who seek Jesus will find him. Sometimes we hear Christians talking about finding Jesus or even being found by Jesus as the moment of finding salvation, while others speak more about following Jesus as though believing the good news of God's kingdom is more about being good news to the poor. The New Testament presents us with two kinds of calls. Both are very important for Christians and they can be distinguished from each other, but not too sharply. In in the book of Acts and in the letters of the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, people are called to have faith in the name of Jesus. That is, they are told that if they believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead as an act of God undertaken for our salvation, then faith in Christ will lead to their eternal salvation. This message is present in some form in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. But far more prevalent in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the call to become followers, that is, disciples of Jesus. In these Gospels, Jesus sends his disciples out with the command to do the same works they have seen him do. In the Gospel of John, however, we encounter a Jesus that talks very differently from the way Jesus speaks in the other Gospels. For 2,000 years Christians have had little difficulty accepting that it is one and the same Jesus in all the Gospels. But explaining why his lengthy discourses in John are so different from the parables and Beatitudes is not always easy. I claim no great personal expertise or authority on the matter but I am drawn to the suggestion of those who see in the Gospel of John the fruit of years of contemplation on the meaning of Jesus's earthly ministry by a rather mystical beloved disciple in the community he instructs. If this is so, then most of what we see and hear Jesus doing in the Gospel of John is an encounter with the risen Christ, abiding in the Christian community and instructing them through his advocate, the Holy Spirit. The lengthy discourses in John can be heard as the deep meaning of what he says in the quite different fashion of parables, beatitudes, and wisdom sayings in the other Gospels. If you see Jesus as going out into the world with the good news of salvation, then you will be drawn to words that suggest discipleship means walking in his footsteps, words that send you out into the world. If, however, the world has become very hostile, both to your message and your adherence to the message, going out into the world might not be how you see evangelization happening, especially if for self-protection you've drawn inward as a community. Because the Gospel of John is intent on revealing the risen Christ in the life of a specific community, when originally gathered around a disciple, the Gospel calls beloved. Being a follower of Jesus is presented in John as abiding or remaining in Jesus. Many see the community for which the Gospel of John was originally written in just that light. Notice in John that the good news is usually spread by those who are first drawn to Jesus. In John, it isn't the image of following Jesus that predominates. It's the image of being with him, of coming to recognize him for who he is only as a result of remaining with him. Like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 who sits with him at the will and who only finally accepts him as the Messiah after conversing with him. Or the man born blind in John chapter 9 who after having his sight restored still has to ask Jesus to show him the Son of Man. Even the miracles in John are described as signs that point us to Jesus. We find Jesus, we find salvation, when we contemplate the reality of who he is and center our lives on him, when we encounter him within our midst and within ourselves. In John chapter 7 verse 38 we read, Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him. If you see Jesus first and foremost as dwelling in your midst, encouraging you to grow in love and awareness of his presence, you probably would prefer images that suggest being planted or rooted in him to ones that suggest traveling or moving. In John chapter 15 verses five through nine, we read some of Jesus's final words to his disciples. He is about to leave them to die on the cross, and yet his message to them is to remain in him. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit because without me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me will be thrown out like a branch and wither. People will gather them and throw them into a fire and they will be burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father loves me, so I also love you, remain in my love. Jesus is going away, but because he is going to send them the spirit, the advocate, they will also never be separated from him. After the resurrection, after he sends them his spirit, following Jesus will be a matter of turning inward. The pilgrimage that John sends us on is an inward pilgrimage. This distinction between the type of calls is significant enough that N.T. Wright, a highly respected Bible scholar, speaks of a difference among modern Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant, between Epistle Christians and Gospel Christians. The assertion is being made that Epistle Christians emphasize personal faith in Jesus as the one who saves them from their sins, while Gospel Christians emphasize following the path set down by Jesus in bringing God's love to the poor and suffering of the world. Unfortunately, those who emphasize the difference between the two calls seem to ignore the fact that all Christians in baptism are called to discipleship, at the risk of being called a gospel Christian. Oh hey, I kind of like that. I am mindful that Jesus warns his followers in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 to do more than call him Lord, as if that were enough for salvation. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. But that message is not absent from the epistles either. In Ephesians, we are told that while it is faith in Christ that saves us, because of faith in Christ, we have become new creatures. Created, Paul says, in Christ Jesus for the good works that God has prepared in advance, that we should live in them. Perhaps hearing God's call in our life comes in part with the realization that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, but being freely given the gift of God's love, we discover this gift has to be freely shared in tangible ways with those who suffer in the world. This realization is so powerful in the lives of some saints that they have become remembered forever for their selfless acts of Christ-like love. To name just two, I think of Francis of Assisi and Mother Teresa. Faith in Jesus leads many in the world to tell Jesus that we want to follow him. But Jesus has an answer to that desire that is also a warning, and it is found in Matthew and Luke. Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Those who are truly intent on following Jesus must be prepared to give up everything else in life for the solitary purpose of following Jesus. It can be that radical of a call. Of course, Jesus also promises rewards for answering the call. But along with the rewards might also come persecution. Listen to this passage from Mark chapter 10 verses 29 through 30. Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, there is no one who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more, now and in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. I want to follow Jesus, but I also firmly hope that trusting in him as our Savior will be enough to avoid any uncertainty as to what he says to me on the day of judgment. God's love is a gift, not something we earn. The promise of eternal life is part of that gift. It too cannot be earned. But wouldn't it be sad if we could somehow use the gift of faith in Jesus to excuse us from answering the call to follow Jesus? In life, our journeys are both real and metaphorical. We move about the face of the earth, and for some few, even beyond. Who knows where earthlings might travel in the future? We also frequently find ourselves in new places emotionally and spiritually without necessarily having traveled at all. Life moves us even when we are standing still. Some of our greatest spiritual pilgrims were called anchorites and monastics, men and women who spent their lives abiding with, remaining with Christ day in and day out in the same physical location. This lecture concludes Little Rock Scripture Studies Pilgrim People. I hope the study has helped you to recognize how deep and continuous the theme of pilgrimage or sojourning is in sacred scripture. Regardless of their nature, when our journeys are examined in the light of scripture and the experiences of God's people, they are given a compass and a well-seasoned, trustworthy guide. As the psalmist says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path.